This is Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. All right, are we do are we doing this? Let's do it. Welcome back to Near Dark Radio, folks. I am your host, John Gower, and I am joined today by a man of immeasurable imagination, a seeker of secret signs, and a walker of weird ways. Please clutch your mandalas and get your anal chakras spinning for the Renaissance Renard himself, Mr. Ray Fox. That's quite the intro. That's, yeah, I'm trying to get better at those. Yeah, that's good. That's that's a very Greg Carlwood. Like that's that's hey. in that it's in the neighborhood. Hey, don't it's don't the, don't I'm just saying tell people gold, where I'm stealing this shit from. I'm just from. telling you that's the gold standard. <laughs> it is gold truly standard. the gold. He would have gone on for another five minutes. He would have. Though. He would have. Um, we have a very promising show for you today. It's going to be fun because keeping in line with the more spiritual trajectory the show has taken over the past few weeks, we're going to attempt. To give you a little introduction to what we've variously referred to on this podcast as the esoteric, the mystical, the transcendent, and we're going to make this attempt because you let me borrow a book mm-hmm. several weeks ago that gives a sweeping history of esotericism in the Western world, and for today's purposes... What interested me most about this book, perhaps even more so than some of the esoteric movements or practices or philosophies described therein, was the approach that the author took to writing the book, which was to take as a starting point to modern thinkers, a German philosopher named John Gebse and a British neuroscientist named Ian McGilchrist, and sort of weave those two writers' thoughts and theories together to approach this subject. But I'm getting ahead of ourselves. The news of the world is calling. I stumbled upon yesterday a fun little website for that might be appropriate for many of our listeners called Unvaccinated. Oh, yeah. It is a dating site for those who wish to find unvaccinated partners so you can have babies that don't have extra brain protein (laughs) (laughs) yeah well their um their slogan on their instagram page which only has one post to date says unvaccinated.com pure blood pure love now wow now um if you're in the market for a pure-blooded soulmate, you you the funny thing about that is you can say it with a Dracula accent or <laughs> or you can say it with like an SS commander accent. You can say it with either accent and it really it works. It works. It, it works. works. Yeah. So you're either a night walker or a Nazi. Yeah. That's what we're getting at here. <laughs> Again, there's a bit of an esoteric crash course that they could have taken in the magic of words and how to use them that would have been advisable before coming up with that slogan. Or that name. Or that. Unvaccinated has the name. Like, it's not bad. It just sounds like it should be a, a sketch for a comedy show. In in other words, it's terrible for a real product that <laughs> yeah, you're offering yeah, people. It's exactly. a port. First of all, can we stop with the portmanteaus? Yeah, we have to stop. You have to stop. You have to stop. 
But no. this one, I mean, unvaccinated, you have to slow down to even say it. If you just say it, it's unvaccinated. People think you, you have a stutter. And why do they put the N in there? You just say unvaccinated. Sure. You don't put the sure, N that, in. Sure, that sounds better. Unvaccinated. Exactly. You have to it's slow down. It's a speed down. bump in the middle of the fucking word. <laughs> yes. It's even shaped like a speed bump. <laughs> it's, you don't put that in there. It just, it, it, the whole thing is poorly thought out. It's silly. But, when, you know, if, so if, again, if you're looking for a pure-blooded soulmate, or you're looking to put yourself on a list of undesirable people that the World Economic Forum will not allow to breed in the near future. Head on over to unvaccinated.com. Yeah, there's going to be so much up. trouble with that website, too, because the immediate thing that the terminally conspiracy-minded person, the person who the focus of their life is conspiracies, the person who refuses to touch grass. Right. They're pretty quickly going to spin into uh, that this site is actually set up by right. the World Economic right. Forum to either A, locate all the people who haven't taken the vax, which means somehow those people are spiritually and intellectually superior, and so then they're going to be pulled in as some sort of breeding <laughs> stock. That's theory one. And then theory two is obviously, you know, men in black, yeah. hooded masks, Bagging you up, throwing you in the back of a van, and right. killing you. So that site, as even if it may have a positive uh, thought process behind it, it wants to do something good in the world. It may draw ire from the very people it's hoping to attract. I don't doubt that it will. Yeah. So I'm just imagining all the uh, you know pure blood enthusiasts. Logging on there and finding a bunch of like a bunch of people from Stormfront just getting mad. That well, yeah, that. yeah. They're like, oh, this is your pure blood, and they get on and and they're they're like, this is. I'm just no, I'm just imagining a bunch of profile pictures of retarded inbred Habsburg dynasty like <laughs> descendants. Like, yeah, I'm the pure bread. Mm -hmm. You all the pure bread. So, if that's what you want, get jump on there. Post your pedigree in your bio. I should really just try and get a date on there <laughs> just to see. I mean, folks, wouldn't it be funny if in four months I was dating someone I was madly in love with and I was on here just going on and on about it and I met them on this very poorly thought out site? I don't know how many more times you would be able to come on this podcast <laughs> if that's what that was the case. <laughs> I mean, it would be, it would be hilarious. <laughs> Our love for pure blood brought us together. Brought us together. No, I mean, uh, you know, it would be weird. It would be. It I would, would use be, a VPN if you did sign up for it. Yeah, I would definitely do. I have a VPN. <laughs> I would definitely do that. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it it would probably be worth it for entertainment value. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. Mock I almost these signed up for it just to, yeah. just to get a laugh, and then I had that, you know conspiracy pop up in the back of my brain yeah. and I was like, no, we no, don't yeah. want our name on a list. No, you don't want your name on a list. No, no. Um, yeah, I don't have any more to say about that. We were vindicated though mm -hmm. in, in the news recently. If you're not a patron, you won't know exactly why because on our last episode, patron only episode, Ray Fox came to the conclusion that the Fitbit was a useless piece of oh, machinery. Yeah. That could be used to kill you. That can be used to kill you. 
And Bloomberg, a writer over at Bloomberg Magazine, uh, what's his name? Tim Culpin is sus name. That is a sus name. But he's in a, he's in agreement. He he is in one hundred percent agreement with us. Um, his objection to the Fitbit is that it produces what he calls a nocebo effect, which when I first read it, I'm, I'm practicing Latin chant for Holy Week, so I was like, nocebo! Um, <laughs> but it was it's essentially the opposite of a placebo effect, whereas a placebo effect is this innocuous chemical compound that you take that has a positive psychological effect on you and therefore possibly a positive physical effect on you. The Fitbit has a negative one because when you think that you're doing well and you're feeling fit and then you check your Fitbit and it says, you have not reached your required number of steps today, you go, oh, I'm not doing well. I'm not doing great. And then you don't do well or great. It's what I found interesting about this article was this character in it, Ali Spangola. There's a lot of sus names in this article <laughs> that don't sound real. Well, she's a YouTuber, so she very well may not be real. But I looked her up. She is a, she is a human being, maybe with a made-up name, maybe with a made-up persona. What is her boyfriend's name? Fettuccine Katana? <laughs> the fuck? Ali Spangoli. <laughs> she does. She, yeah, she has an Italian Italian glint to her. But so this article, you you see, you have a concrete example in this article of one of those extreme oscillations in consumer capitalist culture because this girl, Ali Spangola. Again, if it was Alia, it would be fine. I just want to clarify that. (laughs) But like Ali. Ali's just too short for you. No, it's too short. Like if it's Alia Spangola, I'd be like, oh, that's fine. Right. There's like a short little kitschy American name stuck on to Deficiently plasticky hip dumb shit name because that's not a real name it's again it's alia or something anyway again even if it was ali ali oh it might be ali spangola spangola which sounds like something you'd wear on around your waist anyway i'm getting sidetracked with my idiosyncrasies (laughs) no it's fine it's fine she deserves it um but she real she's a fitness youtuber and she realized that her devices were causing negative psychological and possibly physical consequences to her. As an example, she says, like, when she woke up after a good night's sleep and felt well-rested, she would check her Fitbit, and it would say, oh, you actually didn't get a good night's sleep. And she would go, oh, oh, no. So (laughs) rather than throw her device away and start preaching to all of her YouTube audience to not use the devices anymore... She came up with her own that she is now marketing. <laughs> yeah, there's Get- a reason she has a bullshit name is because it sounds like she's a bullshit person. Hey, <laughs> hey, wait till you hear what her product does. Can you guess what it does? Sounds stupid. Absolutely nothing. It's just like a slap bracelet that you have on your wrist. And- <laughs> yes. And it and it tells oh and, and it has an God. app on the phone that he- tells you every morning you're at one hundred percent. Because you're perfect. Ooh. <laughs> fucking infuriating. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What's the premium service? You just have a fucking butler live with you, and he tells you that every morning when you get up? 
Yeah, she's gonna. It costs you a hundred thousand dollars a year. She's gonna start branching out into the human mar- or human trafficking market to try God. to get hire small children. That that's just can the, give you positive. Again, news. that's a fucking comedy sketch. It's not real. People <laughs> don't be fucking brain killed with this shit. If you're doing this, you have already had a solid metal. Heat it over a fire, flat iron, run across your brain to get all the wrinkles out. If someone sells you a Live Strong bracelet with no words on it <laughs> and tells you, and then gives you a phone every morning and it pops up basically a fucking text message that says, you're awesome. You're not awesome. No, you, ha- you aren't. You are on the fucking edge. You better not catch a gust of wind. <laughs> You're about to get blown over, folks. The big bad Ray Fox is roughing and puffing. Man, that's infuriating. No, I, 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 I'm in 100% agreement with you. I mean, it's, it's called the O-Band, by the way, which reeks of some sort of sexual psychic energy that she's trying to put out yeah, into the world. The O-Band. But, like, that's one of those... Little, you can see it happening in real time. This, these oscillations between extremes that can't break out of consumer culture. Like we've been talking about this a lot on the podcast. These, it's the same thing going on in the conservative media landscape. The conservatives look at mainstream media and they go, wow, this is poison. It's all ideologically possessed by liberal progressivism. And instead of saying, hey, guys, we should stop consuming so much media because all of it, all of it's going to be ideologically possessed, folks. Instead of doing that, they go, well, we've got, do we have a product for you? Exactly. It's the exact opposite and just as bad for you. Yes. Yeah. They can't break out. They, no. You can't break out. You can't. You're stuck there. And again... While you have to take a machete to do it, you'd be better off wading through the jungle of Twitter and hacking your way to small little communities of people who, however eccentric, have original takes and sometimes even bizarre ideas. Uh-huh. And you, there's a lot, just like going through the jungle, there's a lot of danger in doing that psychologically. Yes, very much. However, you'd be better off doing that than basically going on to... OAN, oh, yeah, yeah, or, or yeah. Like any of these, any of these networks on the conservative side, we all know about the liberal side already. But right. going over there, where they just sell you their own patent medicine, that yeah. is basically, you know, as an example, many of the people at the moment who are shitting their pants that Elon Musk is going to buy Twitter, and right. that Twitter will return to the m- much more interesting but also kind of battle dome <laughs> environment that it was in 2015, which is to say real free speech on Twitter. Right. To the point where apparently the SEC uh, and the Justice Department are, they launched, this is a rumor that I think is slowly being verified. When this news came out that he might buy Twitter, they launched an all-out blitzkrieg to start investigating every potential bit of possible financial malfeasance that Elon Musk could ever have engaged in as the head of Tesla. Well, his autism might come in handy there because he might be just, just such a, uh, 
persnickety individual that he didn't let anything right, but the illegal same, happen. Exactly. But the same people in conservative media, they don't want that to happen. They no. don't want, like these large networks, as an example, they don't want Donald Trump to get back onto Twitter. Right. Uh, because they, then he won't come on their platform and boost their ratings. Right. Many of them basically have said we wouldn't even have him, though. But a larger reason is because they're scared shitless of populism. They don't yep. want yep. The, conser- the conservative establishment, which is to say Republicans, not conservatives, they don't want populism. They don't no. want that at all. They want what they had in, like, the first decade of this century— yeah, and leading. the last decade of the previous one. Yeah, they they want that. Everything from when Gingrich and them rolled in. Yep. Post Reagan, when there was the break there, you know, kind of. Yep. You had Reagan, then you had a brief period of Democrats in the houses of Congress. And then you the had the firebrands. And yeah, and then you had the firebrands who came in afterwards. They were conservatives divorced of religion. Mm-hmm. They. They weren't out, you know. Reagan had the the, the moral majority, <clears throat> right? Reagan had the war on drugs. However, retarded and ill-conceived that was, it came from a religious disposition. Yes. Now, well, and speaking of uh, religious disposition of Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, they too, John Gower, were into esoteric things. A astrologer. Uh, when Ronald Reagan had gone off to Jelly Bean Land, much like our current president <laughs> in his second term, <laughs> which I don't know if you saw it, folks, but the other day, yesterday, there was a video of Biden finishing a speech where he finishes the speech in front of people and he turns to the side to shake hands and there's no one there and he looks real fucking confused. Oh. And then he looks around for who he's supposed to be, sh- and there's no one near him. And then he turns into almost does a th- 360 he does like a 180 and he looks around and then he daughters off the stage uh-huh. and it's yeah it is of all of the biden-esque gaffes and things this particular clip is very damning and when reagan apparently during his second term he was hid more but his mind went out on him right right and at that point the rumor has always been that nancy reagan who had an astrologer who she used to um consult on a number of things that were happening in her own life and certain personal and political things that would have relevancy to the president's office, right. which she would then relay to Reagan that when Reagan started to vaporize uh, psychologically, um, that this astrologer was consulted on an increasing number of things and that that made its way into public policy. So leave it to a woman to bring the dark arts into the white right. house. So, That's all I have to exactly. fucking say so, there. So there we, we segue nicely, I suppose with esotericism in at the presidency and esotericism. But yes, yeah, so there's, there is a hidden history in the United States of America about people consulting uh, or have, consulting individuals with esoteric life paths or uh-huh. um, privately subscribing to those beliefs or some version of them. Right, right. Even someone like Donald Trump, um, his family was uh, Norman Vincent Peale who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, very famous book. His family were members of that church. That is an offshoot of New Thought New thought itself comes out of magical circles. It has to do with the power of the will and the concentration of the mind. And Peel was basically 
mass marketing uh, certain forms of esoteric occultism. Uh-huh. And occult, to be specific, only means occluded, hidden, not seen, right. not obvious. That's, it, it clearly has other connotations as well, but that is the etymological right. you don't You don't necessarily meaning. have to think of a pentagram made out of sticks and right. a, a yeah. fat witch boiling toads. No, you don't. You don't need to think You can of, if you, you like. You can. That would <laughs> technically fall under that rubric, but that's not everything that that encompasses, which is what we're here to talk to you about in part. Exactly. So, first first matter of business, what is esotericism? Which you just kind of yeah. explained it in defining what the occult is. Esoteric simply means hidden or secret. Right. As opposed to exoteric meaning broad what is what what uh, that's the same meaning as implicit and explicit. Right, exactly. Right. Yes. That's they're they're if they're not exact synonyms, they're very close. Yes. And and what falls under that rubric is a lot of things. A lot of things fall under the rubric of uh, occult. And the, everything in, from the teachings of Plato, right. who is well respected in the academy still, mm-hmm. to the ravings of Aleister Crowley, yes, who is not so well respected in the academy these days. No, no. Um, and as a, as a note on that last figure, if you ever get into looking into this stuff. A thing that you will find about Aleister Crowley was that people who are very respected in the esoteric community and know a lot and are solid human beings, they admit out loud that he understood and changed the way that a lot of thought in these circles moves and he was a very important person and he moved this entire genre of thought definitely in the western realm forward in a way however he was an awful person <laughs> think of it like think of it like this when, when what we're about to talk about this is important um it is well understood that there are scientists who are geniuses right that make very important leaps forward in the world of science however they the Outcomes are frequently what you'll just plainly call wicked or evil. Right. It's what they do to the world. Uh, what, sometimes that is intentional. Sometimes it is unintentional, but it is a consequence. And with someone like Crowley, it's almost as if the, the person who invented the Cyclone B gas. Right. Which that's a very sad story. I think it's Max Herber or whatever. He himself was Jewish. He was in Nazi Germany. He figured out a way to solve the fertilizer crisis in the world by synthesizing nitrogen out of the air. I think he may have won a Nobel Prize for it. And then when the Nazis took over, they forced him basically to use kind of his technology to come up with the Cyclone B gas that itself was used in gas chambers to kill the Jews. And also they, I think, forced him in a way. Somehow he was involved with mustard gas in World War I. He lived a very tragic life and he ended up killing himself. But that's an example of a scientist who pushed the world forward, okay? Sure. And unintentionally created a lot of evil because he didn't think about the repercussions of his actions or when there came a time for someone to approach him and they said, you have to do this now, he didn't just say, no, I'd rather die. And because he went along with it, horrible (laughs) things, awful things happened. And you have someone like Crowley or other certain people in the esoteric tradition who they push things forward, but they were evil people. Well, I'm glad you make that point. I'm glad you make that point at the beginning because what... 
a lot of this uh, this book called the book that you let me borrow is called The Secret Teachers of the Western World by Gary Lockman. I suggest you don't look up Gary Lockman's credentials before you try start reading the book because it will give you a, um, a, a, a the impression that this guy might be an amateur or a rock journalist, right. which is worse than an amateur. <laughs> but yes, it is. you what 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 he's one of the main themes of this book is that the modern scientific mindset is viewed as on the one hand good but also just neutral it yes. simply is it simply that is the way things are and anything that goes counter to that is viewed as at best stupid as at worst evil and demonic yes think about it this way this is a really quick aside that i want to throw in john when we think, because again, science is viewed as being neutral, but other than Nazi scientists and a handful of Soviet scientists, regardless of what scientists have created or done, you don't hear of evil scientists. Right. There are two exceptions that prove the rule. Doesn't matter if the scientist invented mortar shells. Doesn't matter if they invented, again, deadly gases that kill people. The atomic bomb. The atomic, whoever genetically engineered the fucking coronavirus, it would appear as it came out of a lab, we don't sit around and go, well, that scientist is evil. We go, that was a mistake and we can't do that again. Right. So in and of itself, science has this sort of aura around it that basically says, oh, even if something went wrong, except with these two exceptions, none of these scientists were ever evil. That's not what happened. It just got out of hand. Right. Whereas when you look at the occult, the exact opposite. Yeah. Is, and you have to wonder, why is that? Yeah. Why, why is that? outside of a, a possible bias being in there because people will say, well, that's because everything in the occult world, AKA psi, magic, anything like that is bunk. However, is it? Is it or is it just evolved? Right. That would be my argument, but we're going we're gonna to get there slowly and methodically. We're going to edge you, as it were. <laughs> so let's start there. With the notion that science, why, why is science viewed as good and that which is not scientific viewed as nasty or silly or beneath us? The author of this book, Gary Lockman, bases a lot of what he says off of the work of, like I said earlier, a German philosopher named John Gebser and a British... <clears throat> neuroscientist named Ian McGillchrist, and their two books, uh, Gebser's The Ever-Present Origin and McGillchrist's The Master and, the, and, the emis the Master and His Emissary, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, to tackle the Gebser first, Gebser argues that human consciousness has gone through several different stages, and that we are living in a stage that is predisposed to scientific, discursive, analytical, mathematical thinking. And that this age started around the invention of language back in, he, he puts it at like 1225 BC, mm -hmm. so a little before Homer. Well, not language writing, I think is what you mean. Before right, yes, 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 right. sorry, written yeah. language, yeah, written, written language, language, yeah. Um, alphabets. Mm -hmm. And this <clears throat> form of consciousness characterizes 
the whole of human history, recorded history as we know it, and that around the age of the Renaissance, it entered what he calls its deficient mode, which means it has achieved all that it is, all it's fruitful that it's able to achieve, and it has started to, uh, how would you say, crystallize, uh, neck, what's the, what's the word, ossify. Ossify. And start to become a character of, caricature of itself mm-hmm. to the point that it excludes the other types of consciousness that came before it. The other types of consciousness which came before it are things like the mythical consciousness. Um, you made, uh, so in, in an attempt to, because it's hard, and Lachman makes this point throughout the book, it's difficult to use language to describe a form of consciousness that yeah. is literally pre-language mm-hmm. or pre-written language, pre-conceptual. Yeah. So he gives a lot of examples of what that pre-analytic uh, consciousness was like. But if you go back and read the Greek mythologies, you can get, you can get an idea. The gods were running around in the world, participating in human life, they were not far away abstract beings. Um, nature was alive and interactable with. Yep. Uh, what else? Well, nature was, again, <clears throat> filled with spirits. Right. I mean, uh, nature was filled with spirits. Uh, basic biological urges were personified, but you were to understand that they were what? A lot of people get raped in myths. Because True. because the understanding of human sexuality was a piece with the understanding of sexuality throughout nature, uh-huh. which was that while there is consensual sex, there's also non-consensual sex. These things mix together frequently very darkly. One of the most famous myths ever in the Western tradition would be Lena and the Swan, mm-hmm. which involves Zeus. And or Hades and Persephone, Hades and Persephone and what can come out of it. And a great modern myth, uh, one of the few comics that I would ever put in this would be The Watchmen, which a very central portion at the end of the entire series is the godlike character himself, who is very used to be human, is not anymore. The blue Mr. Mr. Manhattan. Yes, Yes. When he realizes that the woman that he loves is the product of rape. Oh, yes, that she her mother was raped by another person who had been killed earlier in the thing that was also a somewhat of a superhero. And the notion that as he thought that the world was awful and terrible and was going to be destroyed, the fact that she could come from something that was so awful and be such an amazing person who was so important to him was a reason not to allow the earth to be destroyed or to give up on humanity entirely because one can never know in a complex system, one can never know what all of these interactions will produce as they go along. So myths very much, uh, and Alan Moore no doubt had that in mind He's steeped in mythology when he produced that ending. Right. Is, and yeah. just a quick point because you brought that up. Mm-hmm. As we're talking about this stuff, for example, here you have mythology cropping up in the modern world. Mm-hmm. Mythology is not dead. No. The new form of consciousness does not 
eradicate the old. It's not like we can't think mythically anymore. It's that it's difficult for us. It's that if you want to turn to McGill Christ, yeah. it's that the analytic, uh, discursive, logical part of our brain literally has achieved dominance over the symbolic, imagistic, uh, I, won't, I don't want to say emotional because I don't think that's part of it, but the emotions play into it. Yeah, in, in a way. I mean, emotions, emotions feed emotions and intellect feed into imagination, and right. then imagination feeds out into will and memory. Those four sure, things sure. all interact together. And again, to use an esoteric framework for this, in Kabbalah you have the tree of life, which is sort of shaped like an elongated diamond. And in the middle of it is a square. You can look this up if you need to. Yeah, I would, I would recommend. Yeah, I would we, recommend. We don't, we don't have a visual podcast we would show right. you. <laughs> but uh, in the center is imagination. And then if that's at the middle of a square. And then the bottom two corners, which are lower, are intellect and emotion. And then above imagination are will and memory. But imagination is the nexus of all these things. Gotcha, okay. It, it, it's in the center, and if you can if you can imagine enough, if you have a good enough imagination, if you have a strong enough imagination, then that means basically your emotions and your intellect are feeding into it to create a fruitful, useful product that makes you a better being. And then from there, you can increase your memory and your will. You know, and we'll get into this in a moment. We're going to discuss ancient systems of memory. Right that are not standard, and they did not involve learning things by rote. Right. They involved imagining things in right. a certain way to m strengthen your memory. So all this, emotions do, I say all this to say, emotions do factor in, emotions and intellect factor in, but the ability well, to say how emotions work because of naturally how emotions are is more difficult. Right, it's right. because you're trying to apply what McGill Christ, I, I, I wanted to avoid this dichotomy because it, it throws people off because the left brain, right brain uh, distinction was kind of debunked in the 70s. Yeah. But what McGill Christ essentially says is you have a left brain, you have a right brain. doesn't matter if the left brain is located in the left hemisphere and the right brain is located in the right hemisphere. What matters is that you have two different types of interacting with the world. On the one hand, yeah. you have a left brain that is or a analytical brain that is seeking to break everything apart into very manageable, uh, organizable, uh, categorical elements. Right. So it, it's very useful for survival. It's dig It's very digital. It's like ones yeah. and zeros, yeses and nos. Right. It's black and white. Black and white. And it's, it's looking at the pieces to form the whole. Okay, so you look yes. at individual then, pieces like a jigsaw and then you put them together. Right. Or it's like a this is the well, example. Well, and then the, the other yeah. side just before we go too far yeah. is the the part that is able to experience the whole. Yes. The part that is not very good at expressing right what the whole is. Not not in not in uh linear analytical terms. Right. right. So, so for well, instance, easily communicable terms. Easily well in ver verbally or in written terms, because they're, for instance, you're a musician. Right, right. Which deals heavily with your 
right brain with that hope. We'll call it the holistic part of your brain. Yes. That's yes, good word. Yeah. It, it uses, you can communicate very, very complex things, but it normally has to be done in a nonlinear fashion with the right brain. The most beautiful things in life that human beings produce frequently heavily involve the right brain. Right. When you just have a flash of inspiration, when you understand something instantly, when you get the answer to something, it just appears in your mind or you have a dream and explains it. Like the the individual who came up with the structure of the benzene ring, who was a chemist, mm-hmm. and he was trying to figure out, okay, how, like, what is the chemical composition of this? How is it structured? I don't get it. The way that it happened is he had a dream of an Ouroboros, of a snake eating its tail in his head, uh-huh. that then I think was the color of benzene. And when he woke up, he goes, the structure is a circle. It's a loop. Right. Which is what it was. There are many, you can look into the literature, there are many famous cases in uh, science of very smart people who they aren't just digital linear people when they have these giant breakthroughs it comes from a holistic understanding alan watts used to explain it as there's a portion of your consciousness that is let's just say the world is a dark room and you step into it okay there's a portion of your consciousness that's like a flashlight and you turn the flashlight on i like to call that the attention yeah the attention or or again it's it's or the intentionality as husserl Yeah, yeah, that is what he was called. It was the intentionalities. It's a flashlight, and you can guide the flashlight around the room, and you can see in great detail what your the very small patch that illuminates, right? And you can see very clearly what it is. And then the right brain, the holistic portion of your brain, is a floodlight by comparison. And so when you kick that on. You can, you don't have to flash the flashlight around the room. Or you could say, you could even say it's more like a flashbulb because when you hit it, everything's illuminated and then it's gone. And then it's gone. It's or, immediate. It's. Or with, or with like a floodlight that, that works, but also with a floodlight, floodlights are so intense and they're so bright. Right, right. You may not be able to pick up the individual details on the room, but right. you can get the shape of the room. Now, if you had the flashlight and someone said to you, Okay, from the literal 1,000 flashlight strokes that you made across the room, now I want you to draw how the room is shaped and what is in it. It would be a strange, somewhat frightening, right. abstract picture, like a child who had a head trauma is probably what it would look like. It wouldn't look Yeah, good. and it would, yeah. it would be literally the process that science and reason have been trying to do for the past 3000 years. Yeah. It is to construct a model of the world and the cosmos that makes sense and is all encompassing and And, demonstrable. And both these forms of consciousness are important. And the the right brain, left brain distinction, it's not that it's wrong as McGill Chris points out in his book, what he says, what he says is, it was oversimplified, which yeah. is why a lot of people dismissed it. Because there are things that people would casually say that, oh, your left brain does this. And because he is a neuroscientist, he would go, yes, your left brain initially has some of these functions. But if you were, he goes into cases of this, if you get brain damage, then your right brain can take over some of those right, functions. Right. Now, there are certain functions it cannot take over. Right. And that's some of the most fascinating stuff in the book where he's like, if certain parts of your brain get damaged in a certain way, you can kind of make your way through life and compensate a bit. But there are other things that if certain portions, if your right brain gets damaged in a way, your left can't compensate. Mm -hmm. It cannot compensate. So that's a rough, that's a rough summary of what we're talking about. It's, it's a very important, very big book. The one that we're referencing. So this is just sort of setting up what esotericism 
how you can kind of look. It's a lens through which you can look yeah. at the history of esotericism because to finish with McGill Christ, he argues that the left brain around the time of the Industrial Revolution has pretty much taken over society. <laughs> yes. Um, in the sense that not only are right-brained um, functions such as art, music, poetry, the products of right brain thinking, we'll mm -hmm. say, yeah. are less valued denigrated. in today's. Yeah. yeah, I mean, to this at this point, at yes, this denigrated. Point they're denigrated. Yeah, yeah. Um, in today's society, but also that the left brain is constructing society around us, so that all that we have to reflect on is left brain, mechanical, industrial, mathematical shit. Yes, I mean, and a good and a good example of this that you could take from sort of some recent dust up that happened was that uh, Noel Gallagher of Oasis. Someone recently asked him because you know how fucking tabloids and stupid websites are, and they go up and ask Noel Gallagher things because Noel Gallagher says whatever the fuck Noel Gallagher wants to say. Are you shitting on rock journalists again? Because yeah. I'm welcoming well, it. Yeah, yes, rock journalists and also just people who run shitty celebrity gossip websites. The mm -hmm. same people, basically, but. Um, they went up and asked him something about Harry Styles and his new album or something, and he, Noel Gallagher basically went, Harry Styles isn't a musician. He's like, I don't give a fuck about Harry Styles. He goes, Harry Styles has never in his life had to sit there when he's quote-unquote writing a song and go, how do I come up with an eighth for this? Right. He's never done it. Right. And when you listen to modern music, I, I don't doubt that somebody like Harry Styles or Taylor Swift could write their lyrics. But what I very much doubt... I do. Yeah, what I very much doubt... No, I've heard some of their songs. I believe they wrote some of those songs. <laughs> yeah, all right, no, okay, all right. So all right there. But I have very serious doubts about outside of basic chord progressions for someone like Taylor Swift. I don't think she's really coming up with even her vocal placement. Right. Okay, so just how do I stretch the words? How do right. I fit the words to make this work? Yeah. Which is very important. I mean, that is a musical aspect of a very good lyricist. Yes. Bob Dylan has not a good voice, but one thing Bob Dylan can right. do. His, his rhythmic placement and his yeah. attempt at melody. His attempt were... at melody. Like, yeah, but his placement, the way that he can stretch words to fit certain song structures right. is very, very creative. You can just listen to a very esoterically themed song, Isis by Bob Dylan. Like, that's a great where he's stretching words in weird ways to tell sure, you this sure. song about uh, people going to steal a body in a frozen pyramid. It's a very esoteric song, <laughs> given the name. Very apropos for what we're talking about. But also, they're not, the people that are coming up with the melodies and everything else for them are doing this in a very mechanical way. Exactly. No, exactly. I was going to say. In a very cut and paste way. And so, a this lot goes of, back to what I keep, yeah. say, keep saying about the music industry. When you hear the word music industry, we hear the phrase yeah. music yeah. industry. Take it literally. Yeah. It is literally the industrialization of an art form. The film industry, same thing, although you could argue that film is already an industrial yeah. thing, so it's yeah. a new product. But music is, the, in the music industry is an industrial, uh, factory-produced, conveyor-belt version of the art form we call music. Yes, at this point, it absolutely is. I mean, I know it's hard for people to dial their minds that far back, but take someone very famous in popular culture right now that is a good example of this industrialization and the destruction of probably one man's right brain. 
though in a kind of Faustian bargain, he got everything that he possibly could have wanted at the time that he started his career, which was about 15. So you don't have, you just imagine having a lot of sex, owning a lot of cool shit, maybe doing some drugs, going down water slides, shit like that. Uh, Justin Bieber started out singing songs in his bedroom as a 14 or 15 year old. Right. He was playing some guitar and he got popular for doing these dances and singing these songs, some of which he wrote, all of which he sang. He yeah. was doing some covers. And then he got pushed into this mill and yeah. you essentially hear products of songs. Whereas like a few albums back, he had that one great song and everybody I knew was like, this is just a fucking Post Malone song. He just ripped off. Post Malone, who as weird as Post Malone is, that's that's the opposite of somebody. I'm like, whatever I think of Post Malone's music, right? I go, this is Post Malone. He's he's a weirdo. He made music that you just hadn't quite heard anything like it before. It was similar, right? But once once yeah. stuff stuff gets pulled into the mill, the yeah. mill is able to like. In the industrial process, and dices. things are able to be yeah. moved around. Things yeah. are, you know, you can you can take a piece of music that might have been a Post Maloney type thing and mm-hmm. just throw it on Justin Bieber. Hey, it works. It makes money. You can take something that Lana Del Rey did, throw it on a Taylor Swift. Help. Hey, it makes money. Yeah, the, the famous uh, music producer Max Martin. I believe it was Max Martin. One of those Swedes. Um, he produced several of Britney Spears' hits, and then he produced a famous song for Kelly Clarkson, our most famous song, Since You've Been Gone. Since You've Been Gone. That's right. I don't even know where the melody goes. Interesting thing about this song, which is one of the few times I have to give it to whatever rock journalist did this, I was like, good, you actually did a good job. Because they were interviewing him while he was in the studio and what they discovered uh, while he was making that song before it came out. He was listening to songs by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. And he oh. was listening to, and you can, you, you'll know this if you run it in your head, John, really quick. He sped up and slightly altered the pitches and the tuning on the song Maps. I don't they know. They don't but... love you like I love you. Wait. They, you don't, okay, no, no, if sorry. you listen to the song Maps by yeah, the yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. and then you speed it up and you change the pitch, yeah, 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 and you alter a few things, yeah, 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 <laughs> nice, very good. <laughs> <laughs> You're not supposed to point out the joke. <laughs> uh, you can tell that that's what he did. So he took a piece of right brained art, right, that was largely put together by Nick Zinner, who was the guitarist for that band, who's very talented. He's an extreme weirdo. He's one of those stereotypical artists where you go, yeah, that guy's an artist. <laughs> he's he's yeah, a yeah, strange yeah. man. He's very talented. And Nick uh, put the music together for that song, and he did it himself in a very right-brained way. And then Max Martin brings it into the industrial song mill, right? and he grinds it up, and he switches it around in a certain way, and then he puts it back out. Right. And then that, you know, it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Right. People we, copy yeah, that yeah. and that we and talked that, about and that it before. denigrates. Yeah. yeah, so that that's an example. And and to one the thing that McGill Christ is is on about here is not that the right brain ha- we have to go back to a right brain form of yeah. consciousness or a, a more right brain heavy society or culture. It's that. You have to have a nice, balanced communion between the two. Like the ideal is yeah. a balanced communion between the two. A good artist, like uh, 
I don't, I don't, I, what was his name, the guy that you just said? Nick Zinner. Nick Zinner is a person who used his right brain and his left brain mm -hmm. to turn uh, some emotions, some images, some poetic insights into something that he was able to play on a guitar, communicate with vocals, put out into the world as art. Great art is a nice balance between the left and the right brain. Yes, it is. That's the best What song. happened to that song afterwards is the left brain going, all right, now that you've done your work, let's take it and make it, you know, it's breaking. It, it's breaking it down into, it's breaking down, again, a holistic analog phenomenon into pieces so that it can be literally made formulaic. Right. It provides an explanation in the only way that it knows how, which yes. is by connecting dots, which it itself has to draw. To make the dots, you have to break the thing so that there's spots where you can put the dots in and then right, you right, can draw it. Right, right, it can't be the yeah. undifferentiated whole. Yeah, if you show somebody a piece, a very left-brain thing, if I show you a, a gorgeous Catholic um, window from a church, this piece of stained glass, right. and you, a very left-brain person, but how is this made? You know, because it's all one big picture. Well, then the way that they might try and discover it is by smashing it on the ground and then right. fitting the pieces back together. It's like, well, it's like that. It was in all these yeah. pieces, and then you push it together, and then somehow you smooth all the cracks out, and then you have this. So you take the individual pieces. Right. It's it again. The, it is in, a, the, the, the individual piece is not the work. Yeah. The the whole is the work. Yes, the whole is the work. Gestalt as the German. Gestalt, consinity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Lachman points in this book to several different phases of development along the way of this increasingly left brain or, if you hate that terminology, analytical or uh, discursive consciousness. He says, you know, he, he starts with the rise of the written language mm -hmm. and how that sort of, and this is very interesting because I wanted to include Nietzsche a little bit in some of this and because Nietzsche has a lot of insights that sort of echo or, well, not echo because he was writing a long time before uh, Blondie's bass player decided to start writing. Yeah. But, um, oh, damn, I just gave away his credentials. Yeah, he did. I was about to say. Well, well you can cut that he out. also yeah. has a PhD in philosophy, folks. He's so. a very smart man. Don't He's let very any smart of that man. put Very you well on. read. Yes. But Nietzsche points out in an essay called On Truth and Lie in a Non-Moral Sense, he talks about, he's talking about truth mm -hmm. and how philosophical truth is a chimera yeah. because philosophical truth is constructed out of language. Language is constructed out of concepts. What a concept is, is taking a, an intuition whether it be from the, the, the five senses or something more internal. Mm -hmm. And it rubs off all of the peculiar qualities of that singular intuition so that you can make it into a concept that fits in with a whole series of other concepts that already exist. So, for example, you see a leaf. Yeah. No leaf is like any other leaf. And yet we have a concept of leaf. Mm -hmm. The way we come about the concept of leaf is we destroy all of the most true aspects of the leaf yeah. and turn it into an abstraction 
that we can point to all these different other things and go, ah, oh, well, that's leaf, 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 you know. And yeah. Nietzsche says that's doing violence to truth. And the I thought way- you were going to say doing violence to trees. <laughs> <laughs> Nietzsche was a big environmentalist, guys. Um, <laughs> he nurtured the <laughs> he nurtured the bacteria syphilis in his body for he years. Did for years. Um, no, he uh, but. And so in that sense, he says that philosophical truth, and you, you, I, don't, you know, you don't, I don't necessarily agree with him. I think there are lots of different kinds of truth. Right. Philosophical truth being one, abstractions are not doing damage to no. truth necessarily. But he's right in the sense that if you're talking about truth being that which you perceive in the moment, yeah. philosophical truth is about as far removed from that as you can get. Yes. So... In that sense, language is a break from existence or truth in the immediate intuitive sense. Yeah, right down to phonetic. And this is very important because they're pictorial and they're phonetic alphabets. So phonetic alphabets are a huge uh, break from your mind being able to do this because the, the... Graphic representations are all phonetic, which means that the letters stand in for sounds. And then by taking these individual letters, graphic representations, and arranging them to make a specific sound, it then makes a tree. Whereas if you take a pictorial representation, we'll say Egyptian hieroglyphs or right. uh, kanji scripts, right. okay, many of them, even if they've changed over the years, in the case of kanji, hieroglyphs haven't, but in the case of kanji or, or something similar in a uh, Eastern writing system, the symbols themselves frequently resemble if they don't exactly look like the right. things that they're talking about. And even in senses where they're non-literal, again, the symbol for like quality in um, Chinese is you take half of the character for bad and half of the character for good and you combine them. Interesting. Yeah, so that is just a difference in how symbols, and this gets into esotericism, how teaching people to relate with symbols at an early age can create drastic psychological differences that piss off humanists to a great <laughs> degree because a Chinese child who has been taught before they even know what good and bad are from the time that they're five or six that to get it that for you to create your concept of quality you have to combine the good and the bad and uh-huh. that these two things work as like a foreground and a background it is like an ecosystem in which these things are contained and that is how you come up with the notion of quality it's comparative uh-huh. whereas in our what we use as a writing system does not allow for that. It is exceptionally abstract. It has advantages. Absolutely. It has absolute advantages. We only have 26 characters. We only have 26 characters, and we can convey certain abstractions in a very particular way because of how our language is put together. But when it comes to dealing with day-to-day reality, to integrating yourself into life, and having a view of things that contains your friends, your neighbors, your community, seeing how everything interpenetrates and connects and yep. meshes, it's much more difficult because we were taught this at an early age. And there's all kinds of theories by esotericists on this. I, one that I'll briefly just say for you to look up is 
Rudolf Steiner, a very famous esotericist, he created the Waldorf schools, which are very, very good schools that very – all those fucking tech people that are billionaires that treat <laughs> you like shit and they're like – and they say things to you, you know, oh, well, this isn't addictive, blah, 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 blah. They all send their kids to the Waldorf schools and the Waldorf schools, they don't teach you to read until you have lost all of your baby teeth. Or you started you either until you start to lose your baby teeth, or you've lost all of your baby teeth. They may be until you lose your first couple of baby teeth, because they yeah, because they basically say that the development of the mind and the body together. There are all these theories, right, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. But Steiner basically had a theory that you can look up that's very interesting about this very thing with writing and spelling for people who live in the Western world because of how our alphabet is put together. He was not in any way saying that we should get rid of our alphabet, we should trash it. But he no, was no, just no. saying you have to take into consideration how this particular system affects the development of the human mind and you cannot introduce it too early or it will influence, it will abstract, it will pull people out of, of their kind of... Immediacy? Um, yeah, the, their sense of immediacy within their environment. Right, their connection right. to it. Their connection to the... So, so it, let's... Yeah, yeah there were, there's a few key concepts that a lot of these esoteric... Um, practices, philosophies, traditions, share. And one of them to start with mm -hmm. is the idea of a primal unity mm -hmm. or a, a complete interconnectedness of all being. Yeah. Which is very much, you know, it's a very Hindu concept. It's a very Buddha concept. In the Western sense, it's also the, the tradition in the West that it fits in with Hinduism and Buddhism is hermeticism, which right. that's its own thing. But just put it mildly, uh, hermeticism and uh, Platonism are the really the foundations of, and the Pythagorean, it's its own thing, but like Pythagoras leads to Plato, Plato leads to, the whole history of hermeticism is very shadowy and weird, but it officially sure. appears probably in the, written down, it appears in probably the second century AD. Yeah. Okay. But within in Hermeticism and Platonism and everything that was spawned off of those two, Plato basically said there, you know, you have the, the allegory of the cave. You have uh, the forms. You have another dimension, the shadows on the wall. We've all heard it. If you haven't, you can go to a, any kind of video online and see. You can watch an after school video on YouTube that takes five minutes and it'll explain it to you. And it's very It's got well, Donald Duck in it, it. Yeah, it's very well illustrated. Yeah, that's the Pythagoras one. Oh, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. But then the after school one will be animated. It'll show you all this stuff. But the Hermetic one, what they always said, um, it's the key is as above, so below, as below, so above. So this is this gets into as well notions of um, astronomy in the Western sense sure. coming possibly as we understand it out of India or Babylon or probably both of them in the West, some kind of, and then moving its way over. That's a perfect example. That's why astrology is seen as being esoteric because you're like, well, does it deal with magic? Does it deal with some kind of philosophy? Does it no? but it, using mathematics, which are very important in esoterics. Yep. Plato in his academy refused to let anybody in who didn't have an understanding of geometry. It was written right there over the top. Like, yep. You can't come in here if you don't understand geometry and shapes and forms. Okay, because one of the reasons that this is important where science and, and uh, esotericism definitely were mashed very early on 
when this was all of one piece is the notion that you don't run into straight lines in nature. Right. A triangle in your head, when you see a triangle in nature, somebody made it, a perfect triangle. Right. That is not real. It comes out of your mind. But then how did it get into your mind? Well, it must have come from somewhere else. Right. So when you're drawing charts in astrology is another good example. John Locke is rolling over in his grave. He's rolling over in his grave. But Isaac Newton is not because Isaac (laughs) Newton was obsessed with hermeticism. And a lot of the discoveries that he made were because he was obsessed with hermeticism and by extension alchemy. He very much... And to go back to, before we go too far... The as above, so below. Mm-hmm. The reason astrology is seen as the way it's, you know, just yeah. take all you know or have preconceived in your mind about astrology. The, the intuition or the notion is that as the astral bodies are, so are we. Yeah. There is a connection between the two. There is a connection between the primal source of being, what Christians yeah. might call God, and the lowest, most debased form of life, the one here on earth. Right. They're, they're not, we're not just set adrift in a meaningless universe without any connection to our creator. Yeah, and if you think that that's far-fetched, folks, you better hope that the sun doesn't have a bunch of solar flares kicking out really hard because it'll blow <laughs> all the fuses on this planet and burn everything out. It already did yeah. once. You, yeah, you, yes, it already Before did. Before we were as, as the, electrified yeah, the as we are now. Event. Yeah, which right. you should look. I think it's the Kensington event. You should look into that. But basically, I mean, the sun doesn't have to explode. to Oh, it'll kill us all or get really cold or really hot. It can basically burp electricity <laughs> into outer space and fuck up the weather here, fuck up the electronics, burn everything out. So the notion that as above, so below... This is born out in its own way yeah. in science. The only It's a question not of kind but of degree. Sure. And when you're dealing with esotericism, that's really the argument that's being made by someone like Lachman, by someone like Gebser, by someone like McGilchrist is, okay, this isn't really of kind. Right. This, this is a thing. It exists. It's real. It has influence. Now, if you want to argue degrees – Yes. Like what degree of influence does this have? And this is where science is. Like the degree to which the the spherical rotation of Jupiter affects my day-to-day life is going to be less than the degree to which the messages popping up on my phone affect my day-to-day life. However, do they both affect my day-to-day life? That's a question. Yeah, that's a question. That's a good question. That's That's a good question and to what degree do they affect your day-to-day yeah. life? And so this this is really where it comes in, is basically saying, okay, esotericists have a belief that things are much more interconnected, as essentially a right-brain-thinking person would, than the sort of pointillist yes. view from people who are, we'll call them rationalists, or as they're called online, rats. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like yeah, that. Yeah, rats and post-rationalists, which are post-rats. So I mean, we've, rats. Call, we've called them spurgs on this program Yeah, spurgs before. before. Yeah, it's like rats and post-rats. But this is this is a branch of philosophy that was antithetical. It's like the thing that Nietzsche hated. Yes. It's the thing that Nietzsche hated, and it's the thing that m- makes most people's fucking eyes glaze over when they hear about philosophy in the modern sense. It's rationalist or post-rationalist. It's the very abstractions that are disconnected from reality in a way 
that make you just go fuck that. That is woo. Yeah, advanced a lot of people mathematics. Yeah. yeah, it's advanced mathematics, or it's all stupid word games. Yeah, using this very phonetic disconnection that we're talking about in a written sense. You can lump um, certain aspects of physics, since quantum mechanics, into that. You can also lump yeah. uh, gender theory, gender theory into that. Yeah. String you theory can, and gender theory. Yeah. String theory, gender theory, critical race theory, mm -hmm. um, the voodoo economics that are used to sort of, I don't even want to say prop up anymore, yeah. the global economy right now that are coming, it's coming unraveled at the seams. Yeah, the Shoals Black equation, that's voodoo. That's, it's, it's bullshit. Anybody who's smart and is an economist is like, this is completely, it's bunk. It's no good. Right. So that what you have to essentially, your average person, many of you listening to this podcast, when you come across these gender theories, string theory, uh, certain forms of economics that we're talking about right now, when you run across that stuff, you probably get a feeling in your head, you go, Gender theory, string theory, that's a bunch of fucking woo, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You already have these thoughts about things that everyone around you is telling you, oh, this is how it is. This is the truth. So I ask you to extend your viewpoint a bit for what we're about to discuss because things that people are telling you- We're already in the thick of this discussion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but things that people are telling you every day are this is how it is. And in your mind, you know that this is bullshit, the only reason that you don't go around saying it out loud if you don't is because there are people, there's a lot of social pressure to tell you to accept these things. Yes, there are authorities. Very, uh, yeah. There are people that have, what do you call them, certifications mm -hmm. from great universities. Right. So, I mean, Plato's Academy was a goddamn university, folks. It was. So look at it this way. What we're discussing and about to go in more depth uh, with regard to, you don't really have to stretch your mind that much to at least entertain what we're going to say no. and what we've already been saying because you're already dealing on a daily basis in one form or another with some stuff that people tell you this is how it is and you know in your heart that it's woo. Well, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and just take this approach then. Let's take the um, – we wanted to discuss in particular magic, yeah, alchemy, and memory, because these are uh, three different practices that were central to a lot of esoteric thinking or, pra well, esoteric practices. And let's do this. You have all, well, maybe not all of you, but some of you have had to deal with someone who teaches you the basics of marketing. They teach you a bunch of shit that you go, well, this is intuitive. I know this. I didn't need this explained to me. Mm -hmm. And the way they're explaining it, it all sounds a bit woo, doesn't it? The person who's being paid to teach you marketing, you're wondering, how did that person get to be paid for this when this is really just common knowledge? You're just, you're just manipulating people yeah. based on a, a very rudimentary understanding of desire. What do people desire? How can I trick them into desiring what I have to sell and therefore manipulate them into giving me money? That's marketing. Magic yes. as practiced in the Renaissance. A word that when you hear people say, you know, the practice of magic, you go, <laughs> that's stupid. That's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. 
They were manipulating desire, forces, desire mm -hmm. being one of them, eros, in order to change a person's activity yeah. and alter a person's mental state. Now, if you do some reading of, uh, uh, what's, his, what's his name, Freud's, Edward Bernays, mm -hmm. the father of modern PR, you're essentially going to get the exact same, you're essentially going to get a modern program for how to practice magic on people. Yeah, the PR is is essentially, and won't have to, this is going to be, we'll try and keep this succinct when we're talking about magic because it is quite complex and people have a well, lot of, let's they, stay they have on, a lot let's of, stay in the, in the shallow. No, way. no, I know we're going to stay in the shallow end, but we'll have to touch it a bit. Otherwise people will be like, well, what is I it? don't want us to accidentally hex I anybody. I, I know. But <laughs> one of the things that's happening with PR is it is a, what's very important, one of the most important things in the, in the conceptual framework of what we will call magic, which a lot of people have preconceived notions, like you shoot lightning bolts out of your hands or you can, you know, levitate or whatever else. In the form that it's understood and that we're going to discuss it, which is like the ancient forms, uh, what it, one of the things that's very important is uh, will. As, as I was just discussing earlier, will, memory, and imagination. Now, if you take people who have uh, degraded levels of all three of those things, then what they still have are they have desires. Sure. If you don't have a strong will, if you do not have a strong memory, and if you do not have a strong imagination, you do not have a strong sense of self. Now, you can still be intelligent. You can still have intellect, and you can still have emotion. Now, those things in and of themselves don't mean anything. Again, intelligence is not a moral qualifier, and emotion is not the keystone of justice. Because you feel some shit is bad doesn't necessarily make it so. You hear that, mothers against drunk driving? <laughs> that's, right, that's right. That's right. I mean, I feel for you, but you had it coming. Hey, yeah. I'm, you know. <laughs> anyway. I've experienced grief before, too, but I don't, I, I don't yeah. see me up at the state capitol right, trying right. to pass legislation. Uh huh. So what you do is, in the PR sense, is that you find people, you, you understand these sort of divisions psychologically. Again, that imagination, will, and memory are more powerful than intellect and emotion. They're more developed. So you can still have people who are quite intellectual, doesn't make them good people. And then you can have people who are quite emotional and that doesn't mean that everything flows rationally from their emotions as a starting point. Right. So those are kind of like tools as opposed to states of being. They feed into higher states of being. So really what you're looking at is that people have desires no matter what. So if they don't have a highly developed will, if they don't have a very strong memory, and if they don't have their own imagination, and their imagination would be the memory and the will feed into the imagination, coming from the top to the bottom, and then from the bottom to the top, you have the emotion and the intellect feeding into the imagination. Now, if you have a person that has a shit imagination, then they're not going to be able to connect their intellect and their emotions to their will and their memory in a way. It all has to do with development. Right. Again, the Waldorf schools and whatnot focus on this to an extent, quite strongly actually. But if all you got is intellect and emotion, then you also have biological desires. And right. if you haven't developed the, the imagination, the memory and the will, or the will and the memory, then what ends up happening is that you can be manipulated. Mm -hmm. You can be manipulated very easily and you can be manipulated because someone can lend you without you knowing that they, they call it lending, but they're imposing upon you their imagination, 
their will, right. their memories. If you don't have those faculties developed very strongly within yourself, someone, and, and we all want them and we all need them, someone can give them to you ready-made. They can give you a lean cuisine of <laughs> bullshit that you just fucking eat up, you know? They can give you the cornbread and jelly beans. I prefer my politics from yeah. Marie Collender. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. They can give these things to you, and they they fill a hole, but they are not nutritious. They are not helping you. They're not developing you on your own. So the premise of PR and how it would manipulate understand, esoteric understandings of the human psyche and the human soul as they go human beings are going to have biological urges, animal urges, no matter what. They're going to need to satisfy them. They confuse many of those biological urges. They either confuse them with spiritual ones or they have divorced them in a rationalist paradigm from anything spiritual. Right, right, so They right. think that they just want shit. Yeah. We'll give you shit. We'll give you, we will, here, hey, this is how history actually worked. You know, this is what history really is. We'll provide it to you on a platter. Right. We'll change it at will. We'll 1984 you nonstop. Or 1619 you. Or, or 1619 you nonstop. Here's your memory, okay, for, for your will. Well, we're going to tell you that your will, that's actually your biological urges. That's what your will is. Right. That's 100% of your will. So when you will, you just want these things. And why do you want them? Because you, you think that it'll make you feel better because you're running off of just a purely biological framework divorced from anything spiritual. So you're like, yeah, this is what I want. So an example would be if you want to get, if you really, really wanted to get $30,000 so that you could start your own company, your own real small company, and then in getting starting that small company, you could support your family. You could be independent. You could do what you want. You could put your kids through school. You could educate them well, and you could help out people in your community. Then you really... You want the $30,000 as a means to another end, which is larger than yourself. But if you want $30,000 so that you can buy a fucking sea dew and have, <laughs> and have rad times out on the water. And if you check our bonus episode, you'll see that I have very strong opinions about jet skis. I hate them. Anyway. You um, nearly killed a woman yeah, with one. I nearly killed a woman with one. Anyway, uh, if that's what you want the $30,000 for, then... You, your biological urges, you just want to feel good immediately. You want to rush. Right. It's not connected to anything. Right. You want something It's ephemeral. not an expression of will. Right. It's not an expression. Or if it is, it's an expression of a very stunted, very, what Nietzsche would call a degenerate will. A degenerate, that is, yes. That is, that's what he called that it. That is not mm -hmm. looking at the horizon, that is not looking beyond the horizon. It's not holistic. That is looking right in the here and now. Yeah. At a point. It's focused on a very small point, and the point right. is you and what you want. It's a biological urge. Right. right? And to go ahead and say, relate Nietzsche's, uh, just get a little more uh, into the darker side of Nietzsche, this degeneracy thing, you just described people who are have rationally divorced their biological urges from their intellect. Right. I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of the... Most intelligent people, so in, you know, so to speak, yeah. have some of the worst physiques. Yeah, they do. That I've ever seen, and I don't mean they're born with. I don't mean like Stephen Hawking, like born with a, a yeah, some, uh, yeah, it's terrible, a debilitating disease. I mean morbidly obese, yeah. because their intellect, while maybe sharp, 
is completely divorced from their biological urges. Slavoj Žižek. Let's just all say it. Slavoj Žižek. I was gonna. Uh, I was gonna say. Um, uh, no. I was gonna say Roxanne Gay, but <laughs> Roxanne. Yeah, Roxanne Gay is is a good example. But Michael Moore. Michael Moore. Yeah. I mean, these people are all intelligent people. Yeah. But if you notice something uh, poisonous or just some this gnawing uncertainty that they may that may be hidden a bunch of underneath a lot of intellect your your instincts are right yeah correct there's something wrong there and there's something that's not being honest yeah we'll say or well, it, it's about know, itself yeah i mean really quickly someone made the argument again but their body is it's like the picture of dorian gray yeah it's, like, it's, yeah <laughs> no that's a very good example it's a picture of dorian gray and again what happened with stephen hawking was by no way his fault i mean he had a terrible disease but one of the things that people have pointed out before is it's entirely possible that one of the reasons that he became not just an important scientist but isn't it strange that of the many 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 important scientists in the fields of biology and physics okay that have come about since uh, the 1960s, that Hawking was one of the few famous scientists that anybody could name. They knew what he looked like. They knew what mm -hmm. his work, black holes, everything else. But he had a level of celebrity that was outsized in a way. And part of the reason, some people have made the argument, that he appeared that way was uh, that he was pushed into that position, I should say, was because... He was treated by the intelligentsia who follow this, the rats who follow this very scientific model as what an intellect is. It's purely, it's purely disembodied. He, more than anyone else, even his voice was not his voice. Right. He was a disembodied human being. He had an authority that was lent to he him. He was the closest thing we can get to a brain in a vat. Yes. He had an authority that was lent to him because without the people knowing it who were pumping them up, many of them consciously had no idea, he embodied their unconscious notions of what intelligence is supposed to be right even though they're godless so it gets really weird the tricks that people's minds play on them yeah when they try and divorce these two parts of their brains from one another yeah he was the voice of god and he barely had a body yeah. and his voice wasn't human yeah you see here, folks, it gets weird. You can't have these things pushed onto you if you're not developed enough in these ways. Right. And PR, just to take it as our first example for this, PR is a great example of that. What PR does is that it notices that most people in the world that we've lived in since the Industrial Revolution and then with the advent of um, consumerism, that what has happened is that many people in this rat world have been, uh, have, they have had their memories, wills, and imaginations weakened. And so they can be given those three things ready-made while constantly being informed that their intelligence and their emotions are all that there is and that everything else is, as a matter of fact, biological. Right. Right? right. It strips it down yeah. to the materialist. Daniel Dennett will tell you all day long that the things that you think that you want are made up and they're bullshit and they're just some desire that you have. But Daniel Dennett won't say that the thought that Daniel Dennett has when he writes down in a long book, everybody else's thoughts are, are figments of what was supposed to happen. But the 400-page book that Daniel Dennett wrote, that's he meant that. Right. And he came up with it on his right. own. Because and Nietzsche, the, yeah. Nietzsche makes this point very clear when he says a philosopher, any philosopher's philosophy 
philosophy is just an expression of their will. It's not, it's not some, you know, godlike, crystalline, rational structure that they just happened upon. Yeah. It's an outgrowth. Okay, so PR, magic. I think we've developed or described an association there. Moving on, second example. Modern medicine and the practice of alchemy. The practice of alchemy in the medieval period, especially in the Renaissance, was, you know, we all think of it as the attempt to turn lead into gold or to find the philosopher's stone, which I still don't even know what that is. But what Lachman points out in this book is that the practice of alchemy was an attempt to transform the spirit or the soul by means of mixing chemicals together. Yes. And using those chemicals, mercury, for example, because these chemicals to the alchemists had supernatural qualities. Mercury was mercurial. <laughs> Anybody up for a game of tautologies? Yes. Um, lead was Saturnine. Lead was Saturnine. Uh, Quicksilver, that's mercury. Damn. Um, gold was solar. Gold was solar. These things, they had relationships with the astral plane. They had influences, spiritual influences upon the soul. What did alchemy lead to? Pharmacology. Chemistry and pharmacology. Yeah. What are we doing to ourselves with pharmacology? Now, sure, there are positive things, you know, blood pressure medicine. Yeah. Although one, would, one could argue that we live in a time when we need blood pressure medication when yeah. we, in fact, should not. But there have been medical advances. But what are we also doing with pharmacology? We are transforming our souls yeah. by the use of chemicals. Benzodiap benzodiazepines. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Benzos. Mm -hmm. And all other forms of illicit drugs that, for whatever reason, are legal. Yeah. And that's that goes back to the previous points about intellect, emotion, imagination, will, and memory. These, these are all important to keep in mind when the more nefarious types of magic are being practiced on you as they are at the moment. Holes within you that need to be filled, and you fill them with these things. And right. Again, you have to remember with something like pharmacology and when you get into strange situations like this is that at the moment, penicillin was a fungus, okay? Not a lot had to be done to it. It's a wonder drug. It saved billions of lives. It was one of the most important things that was ever created in humanity. And unlike Stephen Hawking, can you tell me what Jonas Salk looks like? Can you pull a picture up of Jonas Salk in your mind? Nope. You can't. I was going to say I can't on my yeah, laptop. You can't on your laptop. <laughs> but like in your, in your mind, you can't. But that's an equally important. Uh, right. But it doesn't fit in the paradigm that we're talking about because he was a relatively healthy looking person. He was just a normal looking guy. Mm -hmm. All right. However, in the modern era, in chemicals and with chemistry, people aren't inventing shit, folks. They're not inventing new elements. They're not inventing new chemicals. They're taking things that occur in nature and they are manipulating them so that they can get a patent on them. Right. There's changing one or two molecules in them 
so that they can attain a patent to sell you something that hopefully you'll have to stay on so that they can make more money. Right. An important person in the book that Johnny's mentioning, The Secret Teachers of the Western World, in the history of the West, who is also a genius, and he is kind of one of these secret teachers, is it a German-speaking fellow by the name of Paracelsus. Mm-hmm. Okay? This man revolutionized the field of medicine. I mean, he is, other than Galen and uh, another Greek or Egyptian that I can't think of their names, and there's a big gap between all these people. Yeah, Hippocrates, right? And then there's an Egyptian whose name I always forget. But, like, you know, outside of these people in the Western medical tradition and also Arabs were very important in the Middle Ages for what they brought over to medicine. The, The Arab influence and Levantine influence on medicine from the year, like, 1,000 forward is extremely important yeah. and it influenced this guy, Paracelsus, I'm talking about, but he's one of the most important people in the history of medicine and most people don't know his name. And what he did was people who had folk remedies, one of the things that he would do is he would go around, he wandered all around Europe and possibly parts of the Levantine and he collected folk remedies from people. And then he being an alchemist, knowing things about chemicals and breakdowns and alembics and how you boil this and extract certain fluids. He researched by himself how these things worked and how to basically get them concentrated into a form or how to apply them. And he changed the very practice of how medicine is done. But Again, this man... And he is now the CEO of Pfizer. The CEO of Pfizer. This man was an esotericist, but the most, one of the most important things that he always pointed out was he was like, you get these things from nature. Yeah. You have to pay attention to nature. You cannot pay attention to dogma. You cannot... These things that are being called witchcraft that come from the natural world, okay, they, you have to look into them. You have to test them. You have to use them, but they exist in nature. And it is... You're finding the information of the people who are the repositories of these things, and then you have to use your own memory, will, and imagination in combination with your intellect and your emotion, which is tied somewhat to intuition, okay? Yeah. You have to use all of these things together and take what nature has given you so that you can heal people and that they're permanently better. That was the point. And to kind of... yes. Yeah, to kind of go back to something I was talking with Laura Mayo about on the last podcast, you also have to explore your relationship with God. Yes, which he did very before much. you start. Yeah. Before you start, you know, experimenting with these things you find in nature, there are ways you can be led awry. Yes, there is. I think what all, most of these esotericists had in common mm-hmm. as well was a realization that the natural world was full of benevolent and malevolent forces. And you can be led astray by them. So, I want to go on the record and say, don't go playing around with witchcraft unless you are part of a, you know, recognized coven like the one here in Robertson County. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, the, the, and that's like, as an example, um, the, the entire notion of hormesis which uh, ties into homeopathy, is that a small dose of something that is poisonous can be beneficial to your body and to your immune system and to your overall health. Mm -hmm. Something that is very, very... Like a vaccine. Toxic. 
<laughs> in in the in the former Webster's dictionary version of a vaccine. Oh yeah, which I'm sorry. all that all that it involves is a dead virus or yeah. a lesser virus into your system. A little piece of poison. Or a little piece of poison that can help boost your immune system, not fucking gene therapy. But you something like henbane, okay? Henbane or what? certain nightshades, poisons. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, henbane. Okay. You know, okay. like in, in witchcraft I, Nightshade. I know yeah, that like, one is. Yeah, like, you know, henbane is common when bubble, bubble, toil and trouble, and they list the ingredients. And stuff. Okay, like henbane okay. Henbane is frequently in there. Okay. Henbane and nightshades, many nightshades are poisonous. Like tomatoes aren't poisonous, but they are a nightshade. And one thing that nightshades do to a greater and lesser degree that is known is that they can cause uh, certain amounts of inflammation in the body. It's one of the ways that they can poison you. Okay. And he would figure out things that like if you had a small amount of certain nightshades like henbane and you were to introduce them into the body, they could help with other ailments, Mm -hmm. either by boosting the immune system or doing something else. But it was very dangerous work for him to figure this out. And he frequently had to test it on himself. Yeah. Now, sometimes people would be so sick that they would go, I'm willing to let you test this out on me. But he had to get their consent and he was one person. He didn't have multi national legal teams and blah, blah, blah behind him. But he was also working out of nature and he was being very careful and he had a spiritual grounding and a real notion of the Hippocratic Oath as it formerly existed, basically like you can't go around hurting people. Right. That's not what you want to do. That's the first thing that you have to avoid. And and this comes out of the esoteric tradition because he had a holistic view. He saw the world and he said, if these plants are here, then there must be some kind of use for them. They can't all be bad, even if they're bad, at, again, not, not in kind, but in degree, like too much of right, this will kill right, you. Right. So that is, again, a, a way of magical thinking that very positively influenced the medical community and pushed the science of medicine forward and that we have sadly gotten away from at this point. Exactly. Where we want to keep people sick. Because we don't necessarily adhere to the Hippocratic Oath anymore. Yeah. We want to create maintenance levels of sickness in people so that they have to constantly buy pharmaceuticals. Right. Which is against the notion of medicine. Yes. And closely related, the modern practice of psychology. And, I mean, that's one that you can really trace pretty... It, it's not it's not even a kind of stretch. It's clearly born out of esoteric thoughts yeah. and literature and traditions, especially concerning the way memory works, yeah. especially concerning the practices of ancient memory, which I wanted to ask you about because there was... So I believe he... Lachman mentions in this book one of the ancient practices of memory was for a Roman orator, a speaker, a Roman public speaker. I always forget this guy's fucking name. Well, no, I don't think he mentioned a specific one, but he talks about how, you know, these guys would have to speak for hours and hours and hours upon end, and they didn't have, you know, paper was expensive, let's just say that. Yeah. And... So they would memorize their speeches, but not in the way that we think of like rote memory, like trying to memorize all the words. They would imagine, using their imagination, a splendid villa. And then they would decorate the rooms of that villa with symbols and images that 
had a bearing on what they were going to talk about in their speech. And so in order to give their speech, they would mentally do a tour of this villa and go from room to room, and that would keep them on track and allow them to be able to speak at lengths of time without doing what I'm doing right now, which is getting sort of tongue-tied. Yeah, well, they're called, uh, they were generally referred to at a certain point as memory palaces. And this this goes back to right, the notion right. that there are different, that human beings have not always had the same form of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So the older form of consciousness that you have before even spoken language is pictorial. And until the system of writing, that was still the dominant one, even after there were spoken languages, you have a pictorial system of consciousness. So if you want to remember something, then what you need to do is you would need to take, let's say that you don't live in the house that you grew up in um, anymore. You don't live in it. You haven't for years. But you still have a vivid memory of that house, okay? What you do is then you imagine that house, and you can imagine it with things in it, or since it's a house you no longer live in, you can imagine it empty, Full or empty, you can do either one. And if you want to remember certain things, then you begin populating the house with, you begin populating the house with images. So let's, and you you have to create multiple memory palaces, which is easy to do because you can pick places anywhere. You can pick uh, the brewery. In right, 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 yeah. You can pick that and you can start, you can be empty and then you just populate it with things. So you could have one memory palace that was for say names of people. Okay, you could have one that was for your English test, but let's just say names of people, you're bad with names. So you have your childhood house, and the first name that you want to remember when you put in the memory palace is you meet a guy at the you meet a guy at a bar. You, you're like, okay, you're cool. Let's hang out. You're a friend of my friends. Uh, we should really talk, et cetera. But you're like, I'm afraid I'm going to remember, forget his name. Because I'm bad with names. His name is Barry Goldsmith. So right as you're walking into the house, because he's the <laughs> I first, already know what image you know, I'm picking for yeah, him. Yeah. So the name right as you're walking into the house, if you're afraid you're going to forget his name, the first image that you're going to have, you're going to have a bowl of like blackberries. And then you're going to have a man there who is dressed traditionally like a blacksmith. And he, or, or a, a smith, is a goldsmith, right? He is going to have golden rings all over his fingers, and he is going to be on an anvil smashing blueberries with a golden hammer. <laughs> now, when you have that in your head, when later on you see this person and you're like, I've got my name palace, my name house, yeah. you have to walk by. Barry Goldsmith every time, but you walk further into the house and there's another person whose name you don't know. So he's, Barry Goldsmith is doing his Barry smashing at the end of the driveway. And then you get up to the to the front door and there's another person who you don't know their name, but it, it may not be, it, it doesn't have to Victoria be. Victoria Silverstein. Yeah. I don't so, know why all these people are Jewish, but they are. Uh, yeah, well. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, you have a, you have a Victrola record player right. sitting there mm-hmm. and the lady's spinning it. Is Let's call her Silver Stein because then you can just have like silver and a beer stein. Yeah, she's yeah. Stein sure. is a bit tougher. You get the point. You get the point. Yeah. Okay. You get the point. Yeah, but you these these are things that you can do, and this is how you build a memory palace. And the reason that it's supposed to aid and strengthen your memory is because you have an older form of consciousness that uh, precedes and supersedes the one that we've all been taught since we were in school. Right. So that you and this has been a great book to look into that is fun to read is by uh, Jonathan Foer, who's the uh, novelist Jonathan Saffron Foer's brother. He's a journalist. Uh, 
and it's called Moonwalking with Einstein. It's a very short book mm. that gets into the modern uses of memory palaces, and it goes into like New York public school systems for underprivileged children where their teachers are teaching them, as one example. Uh-huh. Uh, their teachers are teaching them these memory systems, and they're destroying all kinds of standardized tests because they know how to memorize these things in their head. And it works very well. It gets into people who have memory systems that they've sold en masse for years and years, like in Britain that are kind of famous. It gets into people who are mentalists and how they use this and what they do. Uh-huh. It's a very interesting book, but it gives you the modern applications. You can do this in your own life, and I did it for a while. It's one of those things that you kind of have to commit yourself to, and once you go through a long enough period of it, it will you just, you just do it automatically. That's right, well, and that's what's interesting to. about all of this stuff is that it's there's practices mm-hmm. this, this this that was the most infuriating part about reading this book which i told you on the phone yeah. which is that every time i encountered something of interest i would want to throw the book down and go start practicing yeah. that especially the memory palaces was especially yeah. because i i see people like you i, I have several other friends who have fucking lightning memory and it frustrates me because I'm like, oh, that that one author that I read that one time that said something that I'm not going to be able to quote. And yeah. you can just pull a quote out of your ass and know exactly who the author was and when he was fucking writing and yeah. who his friends were. And you're doing a tour of a memory palace, perhaps. But, no, I'm, but, I mean, my memory is a fraction of what it would be if I got good at doing memory palaces. I mean... Well, it's still better really, than people yeah. that don't do it at all. Yeah, I, I think some of that comes from... Um, and one of the reasons I'm more attracted to certain forms of esoteric thought is I have a highly symbolic mind. Sure, sure. I, I think of things symbolically, which is any in any esoteric practice, that's one of the things that you are taught to learn very early on is that you, if you want this to work, whether it's in magic or memory palaces or alchemy, you have to think symbolically. You have to think in terms of correspondences. Right, right, right. So, and which is the whole notion of synchronicities. Right. You know, is it if you have a dream one night about a golden scarab that's doing something in your dream and you're like, is this have any meaning in my life, what is this all about? And the very next day you're having a conversation about something that you really don't want to talk about and it's upsetting you a great deal and you don't know if you should begin discussing it with people. And at that point you're standing by a window and a big black beetle smashes into the window and falls down. That is a correspondence, right? If It's something that looks very much like a scarab. You'd call it a synchronicity, but if you look at it in that way, you're it would reveal what the dream was potentially about. Sure, sure. Because you're talking about this very emotionally charged thing. You don't know what you should do. The dream didn't have a lot of content other than the golden scarab. And then right as you're discussing this thing, bang, the scarab flies into the window and drops down. And you're like, that's what it's about. Right. And if you go back and you read the Enlightenment philosophers, specifically people like John Locke, uh, David Hume, uh, Descartes. Yeah you get to witness firsthand and in the moment it's happening, the first thinkers that are trying to debunk that kind of yeah, experience. That type, that type of experience. Where they yeah. say, oh, we have to chase all of the spirits and, mm-hmm. and uh, correspondences out of the world and, and rationalize the world. And uh, what's his name? Francis Bacon said, 
tie her down and torture her for her secrets. Yeah, Francis Bacon's a squirrely one, though. Like, he was absolutely an esoteric, 100% an esoteric. Oh, sure. Well, but, but, I he, think... but he hid, he, he hid a lot of what he was doing because he didn't want to get killed. Because well, and I think also like, there's, yeah. a, there's a degree of esotericism yeah. that was just, yeah. that was just reality at the time. If he had been born today, he might be much less of an esotericist yeah. with his rational brain. He, he might be, but some of the things that he said like that, he said to throw people off the trail so he wouldn't get burned alive. That's part of what was happening. Now, some of it he definitely believed. But there were there are things that Francis Bacon Francis Bacon Let's not get derailed by Francis Bacon, but But I, I want to make this point though that you there are people like John Locke where that's absolutely true. That's really how he felt. But Rene Descartes basically started his entire career in science because an angel appeared to him in a room. He admitted this. He had an esoteric message sewed into his fucking jacket, and when he died, it was a phrase there. I forget what the phrase is, but he himself was. That's why he didn't get rid of the spirit. That's why he said there has to be this division. Right, 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 right. It was right. because he knew that advancing humanity would be something of a left-brain rational activity and that this jump needed to go forward, but you can't get rid of this other thing because it's real. It's what told him what was going to happen. It's an angel. Yeah. Uh, he, again, he literally said that. So basically he created this division and people like Locke were like, no, that's all garbage. And they got rid of it. And Bacon is one of the most mysterious people in the history of the English speaking world. He, but he, yes, he did say some things that were inflammatory. Some of those things he did believe, but this is where it gets weird. There's there are these periods before you get to the enlightenment where you have people who are trying to hold on and trying to let go. And then you have people who are just like, forget it all, mm -hmm. throw it all away. And that's where, like, the romantics were born eventually. Right, right, right. There were people right. who were like, no, you can't throw all this away. Right. You're, yeah. Well, and what I, what I, we've, we've done quite a, quite a number today, <clears throat> and I hope you're all still listening, because the, the insight that came to me after reading all of this and looking into a lot of it is that the modern scientific superstructure and by that, I mean the institutions, the universities, the research departments, the technological development, the pharmaceutical industry, all of these different industries that are intimately linked with science are using science as a sort of mask or a sort of uh, uh, a veil of Maya to use a Schopenhauerian yes. term, yes. to throw up a, it's a sort of, it's like a, it's like a, a silk screen between us and what they're getting on with. And it says, when you say science, it says neutral, harmless, beneficent, uh, progress. When in reality, it is merely the, I mean, I would say, continuing perfection of a lot of practices and traditions that have been around for thousands of years and that for whatever reason, they don't necessarily want us to get too knowledgeable about. Yes, just look at it this way, folks. The inability of many people or the refusal of many people to believe that they have a soul and that they have 
a will and an imagination and a memory that is their own and that they can trust these things if specifically if they rigorously work at strengthening them right is the number one way that you are made it's step one in how you're made susceptible to what is essentially magic <laughs> if you don't believe that you have that, then you can't have no idea that it's being manipulated. Right. The greatest trick that the, that the greatest trick that the devil ever played was convincing people that he didn't exist. You can Correct. modify that to say that the greatest trick that the forces of evil ever played was convincing you that you don't have a soul. Yeah. Or the greatest trick the magician ever played was convincing you that magic isn't real. Yes, that's even better. That's that's even better. Yes, if you don't believe that magic is real, that some form in you, again, this is a very broad subject. We don't have enough time for it all, but... No, but in the, in just, the in again, the, stop thinking yeah. about the fat girl with the toads in the pot. Yeah, exactly. But in the sense that we've been discussing it, if you don't understand that in some sense magic is very real and it's being used on you every day, you are maximally susceptible to it okay you could argue that if you know you're still kind of susceptible but if you don't know you're fucked yeah if you don't know that this can be done to you then you don't know that it's being done to you and you go along trying to fill these holes in yourself because you don't know that there's something else that's already there or that should be there that you can put there that can grow out of you like a plant it's growing Mm -hmm. And if you let it grow, it takes up that space. If that little germ, that seed, if you allow it to grow by working on these things, it fills up the space and there's nothing else that needs to go in there. Nothing can even fit. Right. What needs to be there is already there. You just have to grow it. We clearly have a lot more to say about this subject, which we will in future episodes, I'm sure. But... It is three o'clock in the afternoon on Good Friday. I just heard the church bells pealing as Jesus Christ breathed his last. And I think that is a good point to end this episode for today. Very fitting. Uh, thank you so much for your insight, Ray Fox. Oh, you're welcome. Because I would not have been able to get through this conversation with myself. <laughs> <laughs> or would I? Uh, and and we'll see you next time. Ask on Dave.